Well, good morning, King's Church. Um, I'm delighted to be able to speak to you again this morning. Um, and this time I'll be sharing from God's word around the subject of the table, which is focusing on the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, uh, bread and wine, whatever we choose to call it. But you're, I think you're using this rather nice title of the table because we gather round to remember Jesus. And uh, this morning I'm going to look at the subject of fellowship, uh, which is about looking around uh, looking at those who are gathering with us, the body of Christ around us. So let's read a couple of verses to get started. I want to read two verses from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And I'll add to that one verse from chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. And obviously, I think as you know, because a lot of your talks have been focusing on 1 Corinthians 11, that comes at the end of Paul's teaching on the bread and wine, which is affected by his challenge to them about their lack of unity when they're gathering. And we might touch that before we finish this morning. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, which is uh, part of Greece, and it was uh, largely Gentile makeup to the church. And he wrote it probably around AD 54-55. He'd been there, he'd uh, seen a breakthrough of the gospel, and it had been quite... Um, impressive I think in the end. This was a big city by the way, I don't know if you know this, but we know from fairly sound archaeological exploration of the site that it was uh, possibly a city of half a million people. Uh, we think it was made up of 200,000 free men of which we're pretty sure, but then you can never guess how many slaves there were, but you can assume there were nearly twice as many slaves. So that would be about half a million souls in this city. So a pretty big city, even by our standards. And Paul had felt pretty intimidated when he first arrived there and felt uh, on the back foot, as we'd say. But God encouraged him, spoke to him and said, keep going, Paul. I have many people in this city. So that suggests to me that the, there were quite a lot of converts. Then as we read through in Acts uh, 18, we find that the growth of this church caused a stir which involved Galileo, the Roman consul or proconsul. In other words, it caused a stir amongst even the civil authorities. The Romans would not uh, get involved unless something fairly substantial happened. So I suggest that this church was a pretty good size. Now, it would have met in homes, house churches, and yet seen itself as one church and possibly gathered in one big crowd wherever possible, particularly if an apostle like Paul or Apollos was visiting. But this large group of people scattered through a, a fairly significant city was described, as we've just read, as one body, one church. This many were one body. And I want to just encourage you as King's Church Eastbourne, because you're a substantial church and you meet in several sites, I know, but you've also been through, like the rest of us, this odd last year of the pandemic 
where we've not been able to meet much together. We've been scattered and scattered around our various communities, and that's been true of you as well. But you're a church that has grown up in that town of Eastbourne, and you've had an impact. You've done your Love Eastbourne mission. I know you do quite a lot of ministry to the poor. I think you've had one or two members of your congregation who've had um, roles in the in the town uh, politically or socially, and uh, you're probably well known in the town. And maybe you haven't always welcomed the attention that's brought, but it does happen. And uh, on top of that, you've had some fairly significant challenges in the last year or two, which may have caused strains and stresses in various places, but you're coming through it. But into all of that context, many people scattered throughout the city, well known, under some pressure. I think these verses apply to you. Though you are many, you are one. You're one body. King's Church Eastbourne is one body. And I want to speak to you as one body that will gather again soon, I hope, to break bread together. Now, the Lord's Supper, as it's called sometimes in the Bible, grew out of the last Passover that Jesus had with his disciples. And therefore, it has got links to the Passover meal. Now, the Passover meal was a communal meal. It wasn't a meal taken by individuals on their own. People ate together and uh, shared fellowship together. And then, in the case of the Lord Jesus having that last Passover, he added something, we could say at the end, with the bread and the wine and and almost connected it, the Passover that is, to what he was instigating in terms of the Lord's Supper. It had a link. So clearly, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, has its roots in a communal meal and in table fellowship, eating together as brothers and sisters, as one spiritual family. And actually it's because of that significant aspect of the Lord's Supper that Paul is so angry with the Corinthians, which comes out, if you read it, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 22. He's so angry that they are divided and being selfish and ignoring one another because he says this defeats the whole object of the thing. In fact, it goes against everything you're meant to be demonstrating, eating together as one in fellowship together uh, and uh, all one body in Christ. Now, it's this aspect of fellowship together that I want to explore for a few minutes. Let's first of all ask, what does fellowship mean? It's a bit of a religious word. It's a bit of a general word that we've picked up over the years, but actually it is a Bible word. In fact, the word fellowship comes up a number of times in the New Testament, and it's a translation of a word koinonia, which is a Greek word which comes up even more in the New Testament. In other words, koinonia is there a lot. It's not always translated fellowship. Koinonia and its derivatives are often translated along these lines. Fellowship, yes. Partnership, communion, partake, participate share. I think you get the message. It's that sort of meaning that koinonia has. It means sharing, having things in common, being partners and uh, being part of of one whole together. Now, it's used in our New Testaments in two ways that are linked and are quite important to understand. A vertical dimension, a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. And I want to take a moment to talk about those. They're both very precious. And as I said, they're interlinked. Let's talk about the vertical dimension, first of all. 
Let me remind you of 1 Corinthians 10 and verses and just verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the, in the body of Christ? Now, that word participation is koinonia. It is the same word as fellowship. It's a participation or a fellowship in the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. So he's saying when you gather together and drink the cup of wine together and break bread together, one of the first lessons, the most essential lesson you need to get, get from it is that you are sharing in what Christ did when he died on the cross. You're participating, you're a partner in his death and his resurrection. Actually, what happened to him happened to you. You share in everything that happened to Jesus. When he died, he died your death. When he rose, you rose with him. You share in that. He died for you. He rose for you. And actually, you are now joint heirs with him, one in Christ. Now, this sort of participating in God and in Christ comes out a lot of times in the New Testament. Let me give you one more. This is a, a bit of a verse, half the verse of 2 Peter 1.4. Just look at this. He talks about through them, and he's talking about God's promises, actually. You may participate. There it is again, koinonia fellowship, participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So becoming a Christian means you get to participate in the divine nature. You get to share in God. You get to be a partner with the living God, a partner with Jesus. I mean, it is so awesome that you could almost not take it in, to be honest, and it sort of go over your head. But it's repeated again and again in the New Testament. Being a Christian means you become a partner with God. You be participate in him. You share in all he is and all he has. And it is a marvellous, awesome truth. Being a Christian then fundamentally means you have fellowship with God, intimate fellowship with God. And then, of course, there's a horizontal dimension. The horizontal dimension depends on the first, the vertical dimension. Fellowship, if I have fellowship with God and you have fellowship with God, then we have fellowship with one another. And the Apostle John brought this out when he wrote this verse, 1 John 1, 4. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship. There it is again, koinonia with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ that's the point we have fellowship with the father and the son and therefore we are in fellowship with all others who, sh who also have fellowship with the father and the son when you are a partner with God you must become you cannot avoid it a partner with all the others who have a same relationship with the living God. So becoming a Christian and putting faith in Jesus means you are born again of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into you. Your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. You become a member of Christ, part of his body, linked to him with a, a spiritual link that is unbreakable, eternal life. And that happens to everybody who puts faith in Jesus. And so that means being a Christian, a real Christian like that, born again, trusting in God, born of the Spirit, makes you one in spirit with all others who are real Christians. 
And so that understanding is fundamental to what we're talking about in talking about fellowship around the Lord's table. In fact, I would argue that the very illustration of the loaf is meant to help us grasp this. Now, I've got a very small, modest role here. I, I watched uh, Ollie preaching a couple of weeks ago, and I think he used a much more authentic uh, sort of flatbread. This is not the sort of thing that Jesus would have used. Never mind, it'll illustrate what I want to illustrate. Here you have one loaf, nice, whole, unbroken loaf, like Jesus was himself. If I'm going to eat from this loaf, and if you and I are going to eat from this loaf, something pretty important's got to happen. This loaf has got to be broken. We won't be able to eat it while it was still whole. That won't be possible. We have to break it to eat from it. Then I break a piece and eat it. You break a piece and eat it. And so it's broken to feed us. But when we've all fed from this loaf, you could say, we all make up the loaf. There's a bit of loaf in each of us. We've eaten it, we're digesting it. And so there's a, a vivid illustration here of what happens when we become a Christian. Jesus was broken on the cross. He died for us. He had to be broken for us to feed on him, for us to have new life. And we have to personally break, as it were, Jesus for ourselves. We take something to ourselves from Jesus. We feed on him. But all of us who feed on him are therefore united in what we're feeding on. And we become one together by the very fact that we have fed on Christ and he was broken for us and we participated in his body, broken for us. So these precious truths are vividly illustrated in the breaking of bread. It tells us in Acts 2.42 that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, there's that word again, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, those things are linked together. They gave a lot of time and attention to fellowship together, to koinonia, to, to being together, to helping each other, to sharing their lives, because there's a lot more than just sharing a meal. It's about sharing our goods, sharing our time, sharing our love, sharing our energy and resources, our prayers and our thoughts. But they also broke bread frequently, as it happens, if you read it carefully, from house to house. Those two things go together. Those we break bread with on a practical daily basis in our local body are the people we share our lives with. It ties together. Now, that means that when we break bread, when we have the Lord's Supper, when we have Holy Communion, we are not meant to exclusively think individualistically. And it's not wrong to think of your own personal benefits from what Jesus has done, but we are meant to go beyond just what has Jesus done for me personally. My sins, my needs, my forgiveness, that's good. We don't want to lose that, and I'm sure you'll touch that on other weeks, but there is a parallel truth that is bigger than just me and what it's done for me. There is a communal aspect as well an aspect that involves understanding that I'm part of the family of God, I'm part of the body of Christ. And I need to realise that and accept it and acknowledge it in what I do. And actually, there's a lot of precious stuff in that. It provokes us to think, actually, we're all saved by grace. None of us deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be here, nor do my friends sitting around me. And yes, they're imperfect and I'm imperfect. 
In fact, we're all sinners saved by grace. And it should bring a sort of uh, level playing field, shall we say, where we all stand at the foot of the cross and remember we all needed Jesus to die for us. We all needed his brokenness to make us whole. And so we're not looking around thinking I'm holier than thou or I'm better than you. Or we, that's not shouldn't be in our minds. We're thinking this is amazing. What a mixed bag. What a lot of broken, sinful lives made whole, healed and restored through the wonderful work of Jesus. It should provoke thanksgiving and humility and love. We accept one another as Christ has accepted us, the Bible tells us. That's the basis. You understand how he accepted you. And on that basis, you accept one another. And if he forgave you, you can forgive your brothers and sisters. That's why it's so important when we have bread and wine together that we aren't in a divided, critical, bitter state of mind. That's what Paul is really concerned about at Corinth, that we understand we we are one. We need to love and forgive and accept one another. And indeed, if there is a problem between us and one of our brothers or sisters within the church where we're gathering, we need to put it right before we take the bread and wine. That's the thrust of a lot of Paul's teaching. You can't just lightly come and do this and say, we're all one in Christ, but actually I'm bad-mouthing and criticising and maybe really pulling down one of my brothers or sisters. Don't do that. It's dangerous and we can't do it. We need to put that right, do business with God, and then come in unity to the table. This is a communal celebration. And I want to, in my last part of the talk, come back and just give that a bit more emphasis yet again. As I said, this meal, the Lord's Supper, grew out of the Passover meal. Now, that was very much a communal meal. And so there is something quite important, I believe, in seeing this bread and wine as a communal meal. Now, it doesn't have a limit on how many. It could be huge or it could be very small number. But I think there needs to be a community breaking bread together to really catch what's going on here. But there's something else about this. The Passover was a meal of celebration together. They were celebrating something. They were celebrating God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt, the Exodus, the Passover around the Exodus. That was what they were celebrating. And it was also the birth of a new nation, God's people, Israel under Moses. There's a lot to celebrate in the Passover. We're celebrating liberation from bondage to slavery, being set free from a horrible, cruel tyrant. And we're celebrating becoming one people, the people of God. Now, I don't think it's accidental that Jesus picked that meal, picked that moment up to to bring the transfer to, to what we call the Lord's Supper. It was obviously intentional. I mean, Jesus himself is a fulfilment of the Passover lamb picture. That's just a picture, a type of the wonderful liberty Jesus brought. He died, his blood shed for us, protects us from judgment, keeps us from death. And and also the same act of judgment on the evil powers that held us slavery are acts of liberation for us. That's exactly what happened at the Passover. And then as we come out from slavery, we realise we have been brought out to be God's people, to go in somewhere and take the promised land. 
And all of that has massive resonance for what happens when you become a Christian, what happened when Jesus died and rose again. Our judgment went, the judgment fell on our enemy, uh, sin and Satan, their, their power in our lives was broken, our slavery was ended, we were free to follow Jesus, we're free to be children of God, we're free to live in the new life in the Holy Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit, enjoy walking in the Spirit, we're free to be the people of God, a holy nation, claiming his goodness to the whole world, a nation brought out of all the other nations, a nation born in a day, just like that nation was. What a wonderful parallel celebration comes through in the bread and the wine. Now it is a celebration. Let's pause there for a moment. At the Passover, there was a celebration tone, a celebratory tone. And when Jesus ate the Passover, that last Passover, what we call the Last Supper, when he ate that with his disciples, it was a normal Passover. It was a Jewish Passover. So it, in that old covenant setting, it would have had a definite note of celebration. Now, Jesus solemnly explained to his disciples that he was about to die, and he brought in the note of solemnity, quite appropriately, of course, of his own body about to be broken and his own blood about to be shed for them. And then we're told, and you can read this in Matthew 26, 30, we're told when they'd finished, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When they'd sung a hymn. What's that about? What sort of hymn was that? Well, if you're like me, I always imagined that that would be a quiet, sober hymn maybe almost like a dirge or a sad chant because they just heard this sad news that Jesus was going to break, the body was going to be broken, his blood poured out. Actually, I don't think I'm right. In fact, I know I'm not right. That hymn was a classic, ordinary Passover hymn. There were a number of them, Hallel's they're called, and they were drawn from Psalms 114 through to 118. Psalms 114 through to 118 were sung in different contexts at Passover. That's where they come from. Now, if you read those Psalms, they're Psalms about victory over the enemy, Egypt. There's Psalms about liberation from slavery, about God's love, God's faithfulness, God's strength, and the Jewish instructions for these hymns were, and I quote, they were to be sung in a lively, boisterous, exuberant manner. Lively, boisterous, exuberant manner. Now, you could say to me, come on, John, Jesus has just talked about his body broken and his blood poured out. They wouldn't have sung in a lively, boisterous manner, would they? Well, hang on a minute. Let me remind you that the disciples didn't get at all what Jesus was saying. So they might have been a bit confused and mystified by some of his talk about my body broken and my blood poured out. But basically, they were still hoping for him to be the Messiah that led Israel and threw off the Romans and stuff. Because we know how they reacted to the crucifixion, which was within 24 hours of this, was with horror and despair and actually almost unbelief what's happened. So I don't think they came out of that Passover meal thinking, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen tomorrow? I think they were confused and a bit subdued. They'd seen Judas leave the room, but they hadn't quite understood why. 
And I think they knew what a Passover was meant to be. These are 11 Jewish men. They aren't British men. They're not a reticent. I think they'd have sung their hymn with their usual gusto because they're looking back and remembering, we're the Jewish people set free from Egypt. And I think they would have sung it with a lively, boisterous, exuberant, exuberant manner. Now, what about Jesus himself? Now, obviously, he was fully aware what was happening. But we're told elsewhere in the Bible that he endured the cross for the joy of what was coming, what was set before him. He knew the ultimate result would be liberty for millions of people, including, I hope, many of us listening this morning. He knew there would ultimately be victory. That didn't make the task he faced any more easy. We know that from the Garden of Gethsemane. But he had a joy before him that caused him to endure the cross. So I think he would know these hymns reflected something more profound than his disciples understood. And I wonder if Jesus could not have joined in reasonably enthusiastically, knowing that one day, quite soon, he'd be victorious and a greater deliverance would come. So I believe the exuberant celebratory aspect was there. And it certainly can be there when we break bread. Now, yes, it is important to remember Jesus' death. And you will do that in some of the talks coming up on your table series. But it's also important to remember that Jesus is not on a cross now. He is risen from the dead. He's at the right hand of the Father and he has set us free and he has brought liberty. And every time we gather together as a community to remember what he's done for us, and it will have its sober moments, of course, appropriately so, we also bring to that situation a clear faith that he's not dead, he's alive. And he's at right hand of the Father. He's not on a cross any longer. He's not in a grave anywhere. He is risen and powerful and Lord of all. And we have been brought into liberty because of that. So we can sing some of our songs with a lively, boisterous manner as well. Totally appropriate. A greater deliverance than the Passover celebrated. So although there are definitely personal, sober aspects to the table, to the Lord's Supper, there are also corporate, celebratory aspects. And we need to emphasise both. We won't always have a major emphasis on one at the expense of the other, although I do think that all of these elements are there every time. But we can break bread as often as we like. We're told whenever you do it or as often as you do it. So we can be doing it all sorts of times. And sometimes we'll major on being all one body, friends together, in fellowship, partners, sharing. We'll major on that. And maybe with that, we'll major on the celebration. We're one nation brought out from death, liberated by the work of Jesus on the cross. We'll, we'll major on what the resurrection means for us. That will sometimes be our, our main emphasis. At other times, maybe the emphasis will be more strongly on forgiveness or all that Jesus has done for me personally. That's fine. But let's not miss out on the celebration and the fellowship that this wonderful meal reflects. So God bless you as you begin to emerge from lockdown. And I know the plan is to break bread often together. God bless you as you do it, especially in that precious opportunity to do it in person together once again. How exciting that will be, how much I look forward to that very much, because that context gives you the ideal opportunity to reestablish and reemphasize this is a communal meal. It's a celebratory meal. We are the body of Christ. We are the children of God. We are partners with the living God and partners with one another. God bless you.